Welcome to the Alaska Science Pod. This is an interview-style show where Ned Rizel interviews researchers and individuals about the great place we call Alaska. Ned has been writing science stories for the Geophysical Institute for 30 years. This two-part episode features Vladimir Romanovsky, who is retiring after 30 years of studying permafrost at UAF's Geophysical Institute. He enters emeritus status while seeing changes in Alaska's frozen ground that he never anticipated when scientists spoke of a new ice age in the 1970s. He talks about why these discoveries of rapidly thawing ground are hard on roads and houses built over permafrost, frozen ground that has survived the heat of two summers, but are fascinating to him as a researcher. This is part one of a two-part series that will continue into next month's episode. So stay tuned if you want to learn more. So tell me a little bit about before, like how did you get from Moscow State University to Fairbanks? Well, uh, I study, started studying Moscow State uh, in 1970 when I was 16. And I got my master's in geophysics in 75. And I was actually trained as a marine geophysicist. <laughs> Uh, but uh, soon I figured out that I don't like big open space of water. And there was some opportunity to study uh, on land and specifically on permafrost to do a PhD program on, on geophysics and permafrost. And uh, I didn't know by that time uh, what it is exactly, but uh, I read a book in about in a couple of weeks and I like it. I found there's lots of geophysical aspects of permafrost. Uh, it's pretty much reflecting changes in temperature field. And uh, I, I decided to study, start to study permafrost, and I got my PhD. Uh, first, actually, I got my master's in mathematics because I, I found that I need mathematics a little bit more. And then PhD in, in in geology, which is related to permafrost. Where did you get your PhD? Plan? Moscow State University, uh -huh. the first one. And then uh, I grew up and I became a, a associate professor at Moscow State University. I was teaching actually geophysics and permafrost, uh, mostly geophysics of permafrost. And uh, for, uh, actually, I was uh, one of the young, actually the youngest associate professor in Moscow State at that time. And uh, about late 80s, uh, I met a group of American scientists. They came for a meeting and, uh, in Russia when it started to kind of get open a little bit. And one of them was Tom Osterkamp. Uh -huh. So we met in Moscow, I think it was 1989, I think, or something around that. And we found that we are actually doing pretty much the same thing. So it was very close. Uh, he's permafrost geophysicist. I, I was permafrost geophysicist. So anyway, so it was good to talk. And then at that time, I didn't speak any English. So we spoke through trans interpreter. And uh, and we kind of, yeah, liked uh, what we're doing uh, and each other doing. And also we saw uh, we are pretty... Kind of can uh, add something to each other. So uh, then, in 1990, I was chosen to be a, a, a exchange professor 
between Moscow State University and and uh, SUNY uh, State University of New York, hmm. because uh, we are uh, Moscow State and and SUNY they are uh, they have agreement exchange agreement. So professors from SUNY comes to Moscow, and that time I don't know if they're still doing it. I think so. And uh, I was one of those professors from Moscow State visiting uh, SUNY. I was in Buffalo for about four months. And then it was a big conference here in Fairbanks, 1990. I think um, uh, Günther Weller was organizing it. So it was one. It was the first conference about the uh, role of polar regions uh, and cryosphere in uh, global warming. And I submitted three papers, so they were accepted. I came here in June 1990. So actually, I was here in 1990, yeah. in June. I presented these papers, and we spent some time with Tom, and we submitted a proposal to study, you know, to work on permafrost geophysics to uh, NSF. Uh, but unfortunately, this, this proposal was not funded. But Tom says, well, you still can come and work with me, but as a graduate student. Hmm. So I said, why not? And that time I, I divorced my first wife and I had a son, uh, 11 years old that time, and I knew that she will allow him to come with me. And I said, yeah, I will come with my son. Hmm. And we came, 1992. So it was challenging because after seven years of uh, associate professor, I was graduate student again. Uh, and Tom was pretty, uh, he understood that I'm not just a graduate student, but in all, all official kind of communications, he always introduced me as my graduate student. Uh -huh. But it was fun because I started to play hockey again. Uh, and you played for Moscow State, right? Yeah, I played for Moscow State, but then when I got into career, so I had to stop playing. So by the time when I came here, it was like at least seven or more than that years. I even didn't skate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently it didn't go uh, away. So, uh, And it was interesting how I start to skate here as well. Uh, because uh, I was very poor, I mean, student. Uh, my annual salary at that time was, I think it was about $12,000. Wow. And I was here with my son. So right. I had to feed him and and, and, and do all kind of, he starts going to school. Uh, but it was uh, at one point, I think, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Will Harrison who asked me, uh, if I would like to go and skate in uh, in a party center, and I said, "Yeah, why, why, why not?" So I went there, got some rental skates, and uh, and skate. And I think at the same time uh, I was uh, uh, yes, Jürgen Kindley. Right. Yeah, Jürgen Jürgen Kindley was also skating, and he saw me skating and said, "Oh, you're a good skater. You should come to, and play with us." Uh, not with us, but with the Westridge team. Mm -hmm. Because that time, Westridge team was actually a pretty strong team. And uh, they were playing in intramural, and they were a pretty good good team. Pretty much all from the Geophysical Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of them was Max Swiss. 
Right. And yeah. Max says, oh, and I said, well, I, I would like to play, but I, I have no no gear and I have no money to buy it. Uh, and uh, and Max said, oh, I will bring, I have some stuff for you. So he brought me some important things like gloves, helmet, uh, uh, even stick. <laughs> and Will uh, uh, gave me uh, skates, very good skates. So they kind of put together and I found some small, you know, protection for my knees and elbows. So that was cheap one. <laughs> <laughs> and I started skating. <laughs> and I found that, well, I, like I I didn't uh, miss all this, you know, almost 10 years not skating. So I was, you know, I was pretty good and happy. Yeah. Happy. And you were a defenseman? Uh, well, I played defense, but uh, in our team, I played like, I played all game mm-hmm. without exchange. <laughs> it's whole game. Uh, of course, it was, yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no line change, you're saying? Uh, yeah. And, you just uh, played and played and played. Yeah. And we just, uh, uh, well, there was some change, but I, I was I was staying there. And I played defense, but yeah, kind of attacker defense. So. Uh, there was several very good players there. Uh, one of them was actually our, ah, I, I, I don't remember names already, but... Uh, uh, he was, uh, I think, operation at the Geophysical hmm. Institute. Uh, I don't remember his last name. So a very good player, too. Very good. So we were kind of, uh, you know, interchanging with him. And so it was it was great. Great time. And I started dating. So uh, that's, uh, I met my wife a uh, year after I came here. I mean, girlfriend first, playing hockey, having girlfriend, like... Like uh, I lost this ten years, you know, it was, huh. was great. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so after, she played hockey also. Huh? Did she also no. play hockey? No, no. That was another interesting story. <laughs> another interesting story, um, also related to uh, changes in the relationship between Russia and, and the U.S. Um, her her mother was very active in uh, Sister City program. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Fairbanks is sister city with Yakutsk. Right. And uh, and she was, uh, her mom was one of the first who went to Yakutsk. And she convinced Noel to go with her. So that's how Noel got to Yakutsk also. And then they invited her and she spent six months, about the same time I came here. We actually came, I came here, she came back about the same time. Uh, she spent in '92 the most difficult uh, time in Russia in Yakutsk, six months uh, doing ballet and and uh, their um, academic theater or whatever. I don't know, remember exactly how they hmm. call it. So that's how she learned Russian actually, just going there. And then uh, next summer, their group, big group of students came from Yakutsk to this uh, summer. Academy uh, in art, and uh, about fifteen students, uh, high school students mostly, came from Yakutsk, and they lost their interpreter. Two ladies, they were young ladies, and they couldn't get visas, and uh, they they stuck. And all these students came with no interpreters or anything, and they asked my son. By that time, he was already fluent in English. It was one year. Uh, if uh, they will pay for his uh, tuition for this academy, but he will help them with in- 
you know, interpretation, translation, and so on, helping them generally. And I was, yeah, it was very good for me because I was supposed to go to field work. I, I don't know what he will be doing here all summer right. out of school. And that was perfect for me. And I mm -hmm. said, yeah, great. Yeah, let's do it. So, and uh, yeah, he started to work with those students. And Noel, because she also came from Yakutsk, she also spoke kind of Russian. Um, and she was another interpreter. And that's how we all met together. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, actually, I met my mother-in-law first huh. before meeting my wife. Interesting. Yeah, future wife. So that's, that was another interesting story. But yeah, after four years, I got my second PhD. What was your second PhD in well, it's, specifically? It's more on the mathematical kind of mm -hmm. side of, uh, the first one was on uh, using geophysical methods to study permafrost. And uh, the second was more like on uh, application of you know, numerical and, and uh, analytical solutions to study permafrost. So pretty much still permafrost geophysics, but a little bit different aspects. So Vlad, what's a good definition of permafrost? I, when I teach my class, I start with definitions, of course, and I say there is no good de definition for mm. permafrost. There are several of them. And uh, for some reason, they're good, but for some other reason, they may be not really good. And uh, the most common definition based on temperature, which is close to me because uh, as a geophysicist, I like that's uh, It's very straightforward definition. It's any earth material which is at or below zero degrees Celsius for two or more consecutive years, that's permafrost. So for Jeffies, it's very good, straightforward definition. You right. measure temperature, you measure temperature long enough, and you know exactly if it's permafrost or not. Well, the problem with this, this, uh, this definition is that uh, zero degrees Celsius, not necessarily temperature when everything is frozen. So if you have some solids and in, in uh, like uh, say subsea kind of situation mm -hmm. where you can easily uh, in the arctic ocean most of the temperatures are below zero because uh, water is saline uh, the freezing of this water is somewhere like minus one and a six minus 1.8 mm -hmm. depending on salinity uh, so it's it definitely below zero but it's not frozen the same you can say about sediments there. they below zero, by de this definition, it says permafrost, but there is no ice. Right. But for most of the reasons why permafrost is so special, it's because there's ice in permafrost. So that's why there is another definition saying not zero degree, but frozen, the word frozen. Mm -hmm. So if earth material, which is frozen for two or more years, that's permafrost which is good in terms of it really reflects the difference between you know physical and chemical and mechanical and biological properties, frozen and non-frozen. It's very different states. Mm -hmm. But the, in this case, the threshold is very kind of not, not exactly... It, it will be different for different situations. Right. So that's... The, so again... Uh, definition based on frozen is good because it's reflecting the properties of the material, frozen and non-frozen. But it's more difficult to apply because for different situations, the temperature of this freezing 
will be different. And this complication that actually uh, lots of earth material, which is, if it's fine-grained material, it's not freezes completely at freezing point. There is still lots of water which continuously freezing mm. in a range of negative temperatures and properties are still changing. So that's that's the problem with definition. Right, but let's zoom out a little bit and think of the globe. How much of the world has permafrost beneath it? And why why is it there? If the mm-hmm. world's all over temperature is above freezing on the average for a year, why does permafrost exist? Well, average on Earth is, of course, like average temperature in the, in the hospital, yeah? There is some people with very high temperature and fever, and some of them dead already, so temperature is pretty low. But So average temperature in hospital doesn't say anything about inhabitants of, of the hospital. So, of course, um, uh, temperature in high latitudes and high elevations, it's much colder. And temperature in uh, um, close to equator, much higher. That's why, and permafrost, of course, by definition and by physical kind of appearance, it is product of cold climate. So the Earth is in, uh, situated in, in the right distance from, from the sun. So part of the Earth actually, I mean, annual temperature below zero degrees Celsius, larger part is above. And where this above, then you, you shouldn't expect any permafrost there. It could be seasonal frost because winters could be cold still, but permafrost is really product of kind of mean annual temperature. But there is huge regions in uh, high latitudes, both northern and southern, and in high elevations where air temperature, mean annual air temperature below zero degrees Celsius. And that's where the conditions for permafrost to, to exist. Of course, it's just a general condition. So it means that if temp- air temperature is plus 5, there will be no permafrost for sure. But if it's temperature minus 2, it's not necessarily you have to say, well, it's definitely there will be permafrost. Right. Because of the many other conditions for permafrost to exist. But generally speaking, temperature is the first thing to look. Air temperature, first thing to look. So... Uh, and because of this uh, distribution of cold on the planet, uh, in the northern hemisphere, uh, it's better estimates how much permafrost is uh, in, in terms of area. Uh, southern uh, hemisphere is a little bit more difficult because there is huge um, Antarctic ice sheet in you don't know exactly what, what's the temperature. There is not much data below the Below the ice. ice. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, this pressure freezing point could be minus as low as minus two, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily even if it's below zero, it's not necessarily frozen, and so and so and so. So for northern hemisphere, that's about one quarter of the land area you can find permafrost. And and you should say kind of carefully, you can find permafrost. So because exact area, nobody knows what is exact area where permafrost is close to the ground surface. But you much better knowledge about the area where you can find permafrost, like Fairbanks. So 
it's definitely an area where you can find permafrost. But at the same time, there is some part of it, there is no permafrost near surface. Right. So if you include everything, like all this area where you can find permafrost, that will be about 24-25% of the land uh, surface on in the northern hemisphere. And most of it in uh, latitudinal, so-called, so and high latitudes, but also high elevations like Tibet Plateau and uh, Himalayas and uh, Alps and some other regions with high high elevations. Can an expert like you, Vlad, can you look at a landscape and say, I know there's permafrost here or I know there's not permafrost here, like around Fairbanks, the boreal forest here? Well, um, I can to say that, but you shouldn't trust me. <laughs> uh, because, of course... Um, from all my experience and you know studying permafrost for like 45 years so i can say that it's very 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 good chance that permafrost is there and there's very very good chance that permafrost is not there but for sure of course it's uh, it's uh, risky to to say for sure and uh, there's some indica- indications of course just uh, starting from vegetation and then topography, uh, position in the you know, topography and relief, um, what, is, what is on the ground surface, and many other things. Can You can guess very, very good that it should be permafrost here. And uh, it's more difficult to say that permafrost is not here. That's a little bit more difficult. Mm. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, especially now, because now permafrost is warming and thawing, and it could be still there, but say, how deep do you need to have permafrost, which will not be important for anything? Like, because this question, I understand why people ask this question. Well, can I build my house here? Can right. I build a road here? And so and so. So for that reason, uh, if permafrost is not there, say, in the upper 10, 10 feet or 20 feet, or 50 feet, is uh, it matter? And again, here we're coming to the very important property of permafrost is how much ice is in permafrost and where this ice uh, situated in, in permafrost. So that's why it's very tricky to say, and it looks like great, you know, big birch trees, you know, forest, dry, nice, sunny, but permafrost could be still about maybe 10 feet from the surface mm. or 15. And especially in Fairbanks area, you know from the permafrost tunnel that all the way down to like, uh, I don't know, 30 feet and 50 feet, it could be lots of lots of ice and permafrost. So you will say, yeah, it looks very nice, but a person will put house and don't worry, put some warm, uh, heated basement. And sure enough, like 15, 20, 30 years living there, he will start to see something which he doesn't want to see. (laughs) (laughs) Some changes, some thawing. Right. One thing that always has confused me, Vlad, is like you have the earth, isn't the middle of the earth warm? And where does that warmth stop and permafrost begin, and how does mm-hmm. permafrost penetrate so far down? Like, what's the deepest permafrost that you've ever seen? How far deep? Uh, well, for uh, in Alaska, it's around Prudhoe Bay, uh, the deepest known permafrost from drilling 
is about 630 meters. Wow. Okay. Um, and that's the that's deepest deep. known. Yeah, it's like almost uh, 2,000 feet. I don't know. I, I, I'm more still more comfortable with meters right. than with feet. Um, the deepest known permafrost in Siberia, it's even even deeper. It's about 1,400 meters, one kilometer, 400 meters. Oh. Well, it's the situation is like this. Of course, uh, the inner part of Earth is warm, hot, and heat is coming out of it. And But if you have surface of the Earth in some positions like high latitudes, high elevations, which is cold enough, so you have upper part of this crust is frozen. So how deep it's frozen, that's exactly the interplay between how cold is the surface and how warm or how much heat coming from the Earth. So that's why the thickness of permafrost could be very different. Uh, first of all, because it's different surface temperature. So colder, generally colder surface temperature, the deeper permafrost, generally. Right. However... The heat flux, it's also very different and varying uh, for several, you know, uh, folds in, in, for different regions. So in a place where this 1,400 meters of permafrost is very, very low heat flux, very low. So temperature of the surface is cold, but also the flux is very low. So the gradient is small. That's why permafrost penetrated so, so deep. Uh-huh. So define heat flux for me. What... What drives that? Well, heat flux, it's just uh, simply because of surface of planet is colder than inner part of planet, which are still, it's pretty much all planets like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even many moons of big planets, they like this. All of them not dead uh, tectonically or, or geologically. They all have a warmer inner part than, than outer part. So it makes a gradient. And by Fourier law, the, the heat will be going from warmer place to colder place. So in pretty much uh, this way, the planet or, or, or moon losing its, its heat. Mm-hmm. And if it's not replaced by production of heat, which is still going on in active planets, uh, and sources are you know, nuclear uh, reactions, uh, well... Decay of, of some, uh, it's not like on the sun, it's a little bit different type of reaction, mm-hmm. but still, some big source, uh, still some, uh, some gr- gravity movement and all kind of things, they all produce heat inside of the planet. So the, and th- this heat is replaced the loss of the planet through the, through the surface. And if planet is still alive, uh, there's pretty much equilibrium how much of this heat was produced inside and how much it lost uh, through the surface of the planet. So in this, if it's in equilibrium, then temperature should be kind of uh, more or less straight line going from colder surface to warmer and warmer and warmer interior. So, and when you put the top below zero, uh, uh, obviously this line, straight line, will cross zero degrees Celsius some depth. Right. And that will be the depth of permafrost okay. by definition. Yeah. So this place in Siberia that's has frozen ground 1,400 meters meter. thick, yeah. is that like a relic of 
<clears throat> hundreds, <throat> thousands of years of cold, cold yeah, well, uh, yeah, seasons. Yeah, it, it is. When you say relic, you have to really be, uh, you know, kind of understanding well time scale. So, but it is relic of <clears throat> previous uh, colder periods. However, with this kind of thickness of of the of the permafrost, uh, the lower boundary doesn't change too much with, uh, say, glacial and interglacial periods. Huh. It it may. Uh, uh, Tom actually did some some work with uh, his colleagues here and published paper, saying how much of say on in Prudhoe Bay, how much of the lower boundary is moving up and down when Earth going from one, uh, say, glacial period to interglacial period and back to glacial period and so. And he found it could be just a few tens of meters out of this 600. So that's, yeah, pretty so, stable. Yeah, it's kind of, in, when it's thick, it reflects the long-term changes, like the cooling which started sometimes like for Northern Hemisphere like 7 million years ago or something like this. And that reflects that one. If permafrost is shallow, like 50 meters or 20 meters, of course, much shorter period of climate fluctuations will impact this permafrost, and it may completely disappear during the warmer period of time, like now. But it will come back if new uh, new ice age will start. So you always have to kind of think about the time scale you're talking about. And for different, uh, and and that's why even age of permafrost it could be d- very different. So some permafrost is millions of of years old. In Siberia, there is some indication about one point eight million mm-hmm. years old permafrost. But at some other locations, like Tanana Flats, for example, here their permafrost could be just uh, it's little ice age permafrost. It could be just two hundred years mm-hmm. old, and all range in between. You can have uh, permafrost in different ages, and you, and definitely there is correlation. So older permafrost usually uh, thicker, <laughs> and uh, and younger permafrost is thinner, just simply because there was not enough time to develop the big layer of permafrost before climate change, and now with new warming, all this very young permafrost and on Tanana floods are are thawing right now because uh, it was only there because of the cold Little Ice Age time. So in the Little Ice Age, we had colder summers, colder winters, and that sort of dropped that permafrost level down farther from the surface. As the right. In some places, cold. even there was no permafrost at all. Like, again, Tanana Floods probably didn't have permafrost in the, uh, in the Hudson Optimum, huh? and only after cooling started. Of course, there were some geological processes also going on. The disintegration of big ice bodies in the Alaska range, there was lots of flooding, all kind of things like this. But say, uh, before Little Ice Age, there were maybe no permafrost in many locations there. Not not everywhere, but in many locations. Hmm. And only during the ice uh, Little Ice Age, because of cooling of the surface, permafrost start to develop. And with this process, because it accumulates ice in it, it makes larger volume and surface start to ra- rise uh, from the bogs 
uh, you know, above the bogs and develop good conditions for birch tree growing and, you know, normal, normal land. Uh, because it could be like a few meters of heaving, this long-term heaving because of development of permafrost. Uh, but permafrost was just uh, maybe a few tens of meters thick, uh, so not that, that really thick permafrost. And now when it's thawing, ice melting and surface subsiding and going back to the same bog which it was before. Interesting. Before uh, Little Ice Age. So you started in the early 90s working in Alaska with Tom Osterkamp, who used to work here at the Geophysical Institute. And you you guys have some long-term sites around, right? Could you yeah. uh, describe them? What, yeah, yeah. That's your bread was, and butter sites? Yeah. yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's, I would really like to discuss this. Uh, so uh, the thing is that when we start to study permafrost, uh, the same as Tom, well, I started in mid-70s. He started a little bit earlier. Uh, that time, nobody was talking about global warming. It was actually global cooling because of this uh, 60s, cold 60s, not only in Alaska, but also in Siberia. Uh, it was pretty much a northern hemispheric event <laughs> of cooling late 50s and 60s. And all media was talking about, oh, yeah, new ice age is coming, so and so. So that time we were kind of thinking about different aspects of permafrost. Uh, for me, it was interesting uh, the long-term changes like uh, glacial inter interglacial mm -hmm. timescale, like thousands and tens of thousands of years. Uh, the same for Tom, but he was also interested in some processes, uh, freezing and thawing and so. Um, but then when it started to get clear that there is some signal, there is some warming, uh, pretty much after in Alaska, it happened actually suddenly in the middle of 70s <laughs> when uh, uh, there was change in circulation or whatever, how climatologists explaining it. But there was some step kind of increase in temperature and it, it started to get much warmer. And that's where people start to say, well, maybe it's related to greenhouse concentration, which was increasing and increasing. Maybe some other reasons, but definitely something is going on with this climate. It's getting warmer. And, of course, people who were studying permafrost start to look at it. And Tom was one of the first people who really uh, kind of understood that Alaska is a great area to, to address this question. And that's how he kind of conceived and actually implemented this idea that let's, let's put these boreholes now when... Warming is just starting, or maybe even even not starting yet. And we'll do it specifically to measure temperature uh, in the upper, say, you know, 100 meters, around 100 meters, and see how this temperature will change, because that will be the best indication of climate change. Huh? So that was, that was a great idea, great idea, great implementation. And because, uh, say, USGS, they measured boreholes, but most of their boreholes were deep and big diameter boreholes, and they're still actually measuring them. Uh, and it's, it's great information as well. And Art Luckenbrook published in, uh, say, early, mid-80s uh, papers interpreting the, the, what they see in this temperature kind of changes with depth uh, was, was great. But... What Tom did, he specifically did this, this borehole specifically for temperature measurements because those boreholes in ESGS were just 
uh, boreholes which used to well get uh, some cores and and it was geological boreholes uh -huh. really big diameter. So Tom did very very good job taking minimum disturbances of the surface because uh, the borehole itself could affect yes your readings. Uh, especially drilling yeah so if you have this big uh, you know big deep drilling is usually they actually put even gravel pad first and then <laughs> drill from gravel pad and of course uh, there is some signal but you have lots of complications you're never sure if it's an effect of disturbances mm -hmm. or it's effect of climate change so what Tom did, did he tried he did of course uh, all in a, in the winter all drilling the borehole were not too deep uh, that's why the drilling time was very short, like one, two days. Impact was minimal. And he put these uh, pipes only three-quarter inch diameter. Mm -hmm. So very small diameter pipes. There is no uh, convection or anything uh, filled with uh, non-freezing liquid. And uh, and that's that was a brilliant idea, I would say. And since then, he started measured every year. Uh, he put them also very... Strategically, he put them along the you know, major roads, which is not many in Alaska. Uh, he had some idea, though. He put them also close to to the airstrips, because he had this idea. He told me about it that uh, he would just uh, buy a plane or, or fly from you know side to side place and to measure. Place. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, measure. Uh, yeah, they all related to these camps uh, during the construction of Dalton Highway to the north. Uh, Right, pipeline, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. They close to the to the campgrounds and airstrips. But after he got into uh, accident, uh, actually the plane was crushed when he was there. Mm -hmm. So he said, "Nah, I I would rather drive. <laughs> I will not fly there." So, but what what is really you know, good and uh, great idea that you actually can easily get to the locations. So. They're far enough from the road not to be directly impacted by infrastructure. They're far enough. But they're close enough that you can just walk there from the road. Yeah. And so are they from Fairbanks north or are they from south of Fairbanks? Uh, south as well. Few. Mm -hmm. Less than north. Because that was another kind of political problem that that time his, his funds came from OPP, Office of Polar Programs, and definition of polar area was uh, Arctic Circle. Oh, so it so. was much easier to get money to do work above the Arctic Circle than below. 50 miles north, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's why most of this borehole were uh, to the north from Fairbanks, but there are several to the south as well. So when did he put those in? Were they during pipeline construction? No, a after, little bit after. Yeah, uh -huh. pretty much after. Uh, some of them is low, is uh, go back to uh, some of the few holes, uh, maybe not as deep, like very late seventies. But most of them were done between eighty two and eighty five. So that's most of the boreholes which we have now were drilled and equipped at that time. And also, that time was much easier to get permits. And, you know, now it's pretty much impossible to do really? the same thing. Impossible. You will just spend all your energy and time to get permits and and arrange everything. And, yeah, it will be very difficult. We add some boreholes by kind of opportunistically. Mm -hmm. 
So for example, we add some uh, couple boreholes around Tulik Lake. How we could do it? Well, the uh, Tulik Lake decided they need, uh, they were taking water from the lake, from Tulik Lake for their you know, uh, use uh, as fresh water. And uh, then uh, it was so many regulations because it's, it's a surface water. So they decided to do to drill and get water from you know groundwater, and uh, uh, and when they started, I said, well, it's pretty deep permafrost there. You probably it will be very expensive borehole. They said, no, no. Somebody told them that actually the pump station, I don't know, number four, I think it's station four, I think I don't remember then. Yeah, that's somewhat number. close. Yeah. I think it's four. Yeah, it's kind of like on a on a hilltop. Yeah, yeah huh? on a hill. So they had very very shallow good water. Well, because they are in the system of this river there, mm-hmm. you know, Atigun River and, and lakes and everything, so they were lucky. Uh, but Tulik Lake was not as lucky, and well, they decided to drill. And I said, and I was in discussion, I said, well, I don't know, you probably will need to drill like, you know, based on our data, it's at least 150 meters, but maybe 200 meters from across there. Um but I said, well, if you will do it anyway, how about a couple of boreholes for us? Mm-hmm. And, and they agreed. <laughs> so that, that's why we got uh, uh, in Mnavet Creek, we got a very good 75 meters borehole, mm. a new one, which is very good because it's very warm permafrost there. It's one of the warmest on the North Slope. Mm. Um, and they were drilling and drilling and drilling, and I think after 120 meters, they said, okay, we're out of budget, <laughs> and let's do it differently. They just did under lake. <laughs> they drilled under lake, and it's uh, they got into, you know, talic, thaw bulb mm-hmm. under lake, but formally, it's still groundwater because it's not surface water. Right. And they use it now, using it for, for source of water. But they left that deep borehole, and we have it, and we start measuring there as well. So we add some there and there and there, but all this big project, it's very difficult, almost impossible to do right now. And he did it this time. There's lots of work, of course. It was you know, heroic, <laughs> uh, of course, and during the winter time, again, to minimize the the disturbances. Impact, huh? So how far deep did Tom put his boreholes? Uh, the depth. Yeah. Depth of borehole somewhere from uh, like uh, 55, maybe the shallowest one, and like 75, the deepest one. Feet or meters? Meters. Meters. Wow. I'm talking meters. Yeah. So it's mm. pretty deep. It's deep enough to address all, well, not all. Of course, deeper would be better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they deep enough. Uh, to see the whole history and how the temperature changed since then, uh, it's the best still, the best indicator of climate change, I believe. Hmm. Because what what happening in, uh, you may say, well, just measure air temperature, right? And, and you'll see what was going on. Mm-hmm. So air temperature, because of all these processes, atmospheric processes and climatic processes and all kind of thing, it's very noisy. There's lots of variations, very different length, you know, short term, longer term, decadal, all kind of things. And all this noise make the signal, which is not that huge compared to noise, uh, very difficult to, to, to get. Of course, mean annual temperature is still get a good indicator. So permafrost down to, say, 20 meters, uh, its natural 
low low pass filter. It's naturally uh, because it's it's just physical physical law, physical process is such that all this uh, short period of fluctuations they disappear much faster uh, in the upper part of soil and maybe ground. So down to twenty meters, all this shorter time scale uh, variations they all gone, and only long term signal is continued to to get into it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why it is very easy to see in our graph now, which are already 40 years long, uh, and some of them even, even longer, <clears throat> to see what what is the, the trend. And uh, just example, uh, I don't know if you remember that in uh, 2000s, like 2005, after 2005, uh, maybe 2007, uh, climatologists, they start to talk about hiatus, hiatus of global warming. So, well, you know, the temperature is not increasing, no, 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 no. Well, we saw it in our, on this data, somewhere in like 2002, 2003, we already saw that increase in this temperature kind of paused. Hmm. And it was kind of shelf on the north slope and at 20 meter depth temperature. So we already knew like five years before uh, climatologists started to talk about it, we already knew that there is some, some pause in warming in the north, on the North Slope, of course. And then uh, somewhere in late uh, 2000s, it's resumed and it started to go back and it was the same kind of rate. And again, five years later, uh, climatologist says, oh, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, uh, there is no hiatus. It's gone. Everything is good. So we actually could see uh, things sooner uh, than than climatologists. How is that possible? Well, because we see the filtered system, and they see all this noise. And with this noise, you have to have longer record uh, to be sure that it is trend, not just noise. The permafrost gives a cleaner signal. Cleaner signal, yeah. So again, it's great geophysical kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fil- filtering of signals—it's it's great thing. The Alaska Science Pod is a production of UAF's Geophysical Institute, where scientists study everything from the center of the Earth to the center of the Sun and beyond. This is part one of a two-part series that will continue into next month's episode. So stay tuned if you want to learn more. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, stay tuned for the next episode that releases every first Tuesday of the month. Or if you want to read some of Ned's articles, go to the Alaska Science Forum at gi.alaska.edu forward slash Alaska Science Forum.